TED Audio Collective. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast, generating texts in seconds, thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magic Write is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You're growing a business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey everyone, it's Adam Grant. Welcome back to Rethinking, my podcast on the science of what makes us tick. I'm an organizational psychologist, and I'm taking you inside the minds of fascinating people to explore new thoughts and new ways of thinking. My guests today are Steve Martin and Adam Gopnik. You probably know Steve as one of the true comic and creative geniuses of our time. He went from being America's most popular comedian to one of the world's most beloved actors. First in movies like The Jerk and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. And now in the TV show Only Murders in the Building, where he, Selena Gomez, and Martin Short all play podcast hosts. Job I know a little bit about. I've been a super fan of Steve's ever since I was a kid teaching myself to perform magic. I still laugh every time I think of his classic bit as an incompetent magician. Like the napkin trick, where he just sticks his tongue right through a napkin. When Johnny Carson said he was going to retire, he said, would you do Flydini? I couldn't say no. This goes back to a traditional magic act where uh, a guy comes out with a top hat and there's nothing on the stage. And then by the end, he produced everything out of the top hat and has filled the stage with stuff magically appearing from the top hat. So this was a parody of that. We'd take it out of my fly. Steve also happens to be an accomplished musician and novelist. This month, he released his first audiobook, So Many Steves, with his longtime friend Adam Gopnik. Adam is a prolific New Yorker writer and author, most recently of the book The Real Work on the Mystery of Mastery. It's a powerful analysis of what it really takes to achieve excellence at any skill. So Many Steves is packed with wisdom and humor from the key chapters of Steve's masterful career. He and Adam delve into authenticity, creativity, success, happiness, learning, and so much more. I couldn't wait to talk with the two of them about all the psychological insights. Steve Martin and Adam Gopnik, welcome to Rethinking. Hello. Yay. Nice to be here. 
thrilled to have you here. This is very meta. We're doing a podcast about an audiobook about a guy who plays a podcast host. <laughs> Adam, you don't know this, but I had to do a little promotion for the book. And I said, what is a book with no punctuation and no grammar? It's an audiobook. <laughs> well, it was such a treat to listen to the audiobook. I love the stories and the analysis and the banjo music. It's just an incredible work of art. Congratulations to both of you. I have not really listened to it through properly because I hate the sound of my own voice. It's just what everybody does. But I'm glad you enjoyed it. We had a good time doing it. I also remember when I was seven and a teacher brought in a tape recorder, which was even kind of rare, and we recorded our kids' voices and they played it back and I literally thought, who's that? What, what is that voice? <laughs> it was so treble and high. You know, we hear our voices inside our head. So right. we don't really, is, you know. Is that why, Steve? I didn't, I never knew this. See, I'm learning something. Is that why? Because they resonate inside our heads. They always sound deeper and better to us. Well, I think you can trust that I'm an expert on this. <laughs> <laughs> and I have no idea. I assume so. Because I still suffer from it. When, I, when I'm when i speaking, I hear myself with a rich, plummy voice somewhere between Alistair Cook and Orson Welles. And when I hear myself, <laughs> I sound like a, a rabbi on a sitcom, you know, saying, yeah. and so, Steve, what is our next subject yeah. that we're going to pursue? You just sounded like David Attenborough just now. It was beautiful. <laughs> yes, oh, great. Good. <laughs> we had to let Adam get a word in. I mean, we, we have so many Steves. I felt like we needed another Adam. To balance things out. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. It's actually really fun to hear the two of you talk because you can hear the friendship in your exchange. And that's one of the things I want to talk about over the course of this conversation. But I, I thought it would be fun to dig into some of the Steves for starters. And Adam, this comes at a perfect time because you recently published The Real Work and you analyzed mastery. And so I think Steve is a case study for you in many ways of what it takes to master just about any craft. Absolutely. It was one of the pleasures of doing this is that it was a lovely overlap. I was working on The Real Work, my book on the mystery of mastery, which is a study in comic inadequacy in most ways. But simultaneously, Steve and I were having these conversations. And I know Steve is a little allergic to the idea of mastery because he doesn't claim the actually to have mastered all of these things. But it's exactly the, the point of my book, if the thesis of it, if you want to make it a little more pompous, that exactly the way we learn to do anything well is to do other things badly. And we often get more satisfaction yeah. from the things we do less well because it, it nourishes us. It gives us a sense of the flow of the happiness of absorption, even if we're not doing it ideally well. Lorne Michaels told me once, I always like to hire people when they're coming off a flop <laughs> because they put so much more energy into the next thing. Wow. Which is pretty astute. That's yeah. fascinating. And it's actually a great segue, I guess, Steve, to you starting out at stand-up comedy. And you said, I was not a natural, which is hard to believe for anybody who's watched your stand-up. You look like a natural. Tell us about the early days. I loved comedy. That was the only thing natural about it. But how you do it, I had no insight, no nothing. I watched like one comedian live. I didn't see another comedian live till I was probably 19. I, the first one I saw was like 14 or 15 at Disneyland. Wally Bogue was a very funny guy who did the same eight minutes five times a day for probably 25 years. And his freshness was what 
remarked, it has to look like you're just kind of making it up, or at least that's what I thought at the time. But on the other hand, I love the precision of like Jerry Seinfeld, who I know is not making it up, but the precision is so good. So I, I don't know. I just, it's trial and error, you know, it's trial and error. And I, I have a, a documentary coming out and, and then a lot of it is talked about in this book about those, and every comedian has them, silence, <laughs> silence. <laughs> I, I did a joke recently. I said, I, I love to do stand-up because it's the one place I can go and just enjoy the silence <laughs> or something like that. You know? I like doing storytelling, but kind of like the moth kind of thing on stage because storytelling is stand-up for frightened people. Because if you get no laughs and they're just quiet, you can reassure yourself. They're really moved by it. They're really taken by the story, even if they're not laughing. In my stand-up, I had no story. Mm -hmm. And other comedians do have story. And now later in life, I, I everything I do, I'm going, what's the story? What's the story? Because you can hang in there with story while you're not getting laughs. I was talking to a screenwriter, Bruce Robinson, and he wrote The Killing Fields. And I, I gave him my script to L.A. story just as a ask him to do a favor, to read it and give me his opinion. He says, it says that then the story, you just got to work on that. It's just hard work to come up with the story. Robert Benton, the great film director and screenwriter, once said to me, the thing with the story is, it's like having a nursery fulfill of crying infants. And you quiet one of the crying infants by solving a story problem, <laughs> and another one yeah. starts crying. And you just hope for the moment when you suddenly have only one squalling infant at a time. And that's when you're done enough to start shooting. or Well, go that it is like whack-a-mole, but fortunately, something else crops up, and that gives yeah. you the out in solving that. And it's always a little bit of a mystery. In the screenplays I've written, I like to know not where I'm going, because if I don't know, either does the reader. And then as time goes on and you're writing, you realize you've laid in elements that you weren't even aware of that can manifest themselves later. As I was listening to the audiobook, I'm going to interrupt. I'm going to interrupt you, Adam Grab, because you're one of the few people who has heard it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious. <laughs> we have absolutely no feedback. You know, we can't judge ourselves. So anyway, go ahead. No, I have. I a guess I'm asking. I have for a feedback. long list of notes. Are you ready? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. Yes, please. I was listening really with two lenses. One was just to you know to enjoy it, right? Which was great fun. And then the second was my day job is I'm an organizational psychologist and I'm fascinated by what makes people tick and how we evolve our careers. And so I was thinking about, well, what does the arc of this book teach us about building a creative career and, and working toward mastery? And so I think one of the things that I was really curious to hear more about was this idea of, Adam, I think you alluded to it, actually. Steve, you just did a moment ago with trial and error. It seems like a lot of early standup was being like a scientist, where you have a, a hypothesis that something's going to be funny, you test it with an audience, you gather data, and then you iterate. <laughs> well, I, I think that's, that's true. But the one thing the science metaphor doesn't include and can't include is luck. Comedy is inexplicable. I know you don't want to seem pretentious about this, but you did move from a background in philosophy and thinking about the logic of things into thinking about the illogic of things, you know, how the logic right. of That's philosophy true. 
could become the illogic of comedy. So it was somewhat more motivated in that way than someone who's just coming up and saying, you ever notice that airplane food? Yes, right. <laughs> that kind of thinking of, of analyzing everything, it's a part of the study of philosophy. And by the way, I'm, you know, I'm not a philosophy expert or anything. It's like 101 and a few beyond. It was in the air to investigate everything, to challenge everything. And I was at Long Beach State College, now the University of California, Long Beach, and it was an art-centered school. And we just had fun being iconoclasts in our head, you know, just challenging everything. <laughs> Wait a minute. If you were to line up all the occupations from funniest to least funny, it's possible philosophers would come in dead last. <laughs> so, and yet there, there was a connection here. So talk to me about, about how, both of you. Some of it just came from Descartes, I think, therefore I am, which is like, what's the one thing you can know? And he postulated, I think, therefore I am. And I sort of approached comedy like that. Okay, what if there is no comedy? How do we build it up? How do we start fresh and, and make a new thing? Wittgenstein said, the world is everything that is the case. And that is hilarious <laughs> because it's just stating a completely obvious fact. But it's also a statement of if you can make a sentence out of it, it exists. <laughs> it's one of those things that's profound because of the door that it opens up, that that's enough. If you say the world is everything that is the case, you sort of kill metaphysics and idealism with one shot. And thank you, Adam, for bailing me out of that, what I was saying, because <laughs> I didn't really understand it. <laughs> One of the things that you've both talked about in other places is the importance of writing for clarifying thinking. And I want to read a, a quote from you, Steve. Mm -hmm. You said, at some point, you had the horrible revelation that if I was going to be successful as a comedian, I'd have to write everything myself. Hmm. What I'm going to say right now has nothing to do with the answer. Mm -hmm. But it was kind of an auteur theory of film that, that the director had the, made a statement. with, the, But I was only doing it because... I felt things had to be new. Even if you left the audience with, what was that? It was better than formulaic jokes. But by the way, I now love formulaic jokes. <laughs> it's so much easier <laughs> and fun and fun. And the audience understands it. And that makes your life so much more pleasant. So why was it a horrible revelation? What was, what was bad about writing it first? Well, because I didn't know how to write. And I had an act of some of some of which I wrote, but most of which I didn't. And so if I had a I had a 20 minute, you know, I'm 18 or 19, I have a 20 minute act, it goes down to 12 minutes because I'm cutting everything that I didn't, you know, that I didn't deem original. Uh, and some of those jokes I cut that were lifted. Because I didn't know. I'm living in Orange County. I didn't know you couldn't use other people's material. <laughs> you know, they were great. And so not only your, go, your act goes from 20 minutes to 12, you also, it also, also goes from getting some laughs to none. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on this book tour for the past five weeks doing countless events, not unlike this one. And I have the same six jokes that I always deliver. And as I attempt to deliver them with some residual air of spontaneity, there's a part of me that grows ill when I realize, oh my God, if they, if these guys ever get together and compare 
the, the same interview and the way in which I am faking looking for a lively answer and then arriving at it, they will come after well, me. We comedians always envy singers mm-hmm. who get to, to have their songs. They don't have to have written them. A lot of them do. But they get to sing them night after night and... The audience wants you to sing it night after night. <laughs> Whereas a comedian, you go, oh, I heard that. I heard that. Yeah. I, I was just thinking about that in the context of, of comedy, but also acting, where you, you have to repeat the same things over and over again. How do you keep it fresh? I was talking to Marty Short, who has done plays on Broadway, and we both agreed that six months in, your performance is completely different than one month in because you're searching every night. It's amazing how you can find something new in a line that you've said a million times six months later. And comedy is like that too. I've been on stage with Marty and I go, oh, that's how that line should be. (laughs) Or, oh, I take out that one word. Why didn't I see that before? Adam, you highlighted the difference between conquering new worlds and ruling them. You described Steve as motivated by gaining mastery, not maintaining it. And I'd love to hear the two of you riff about that a little bit, because as a psychologist, this is just endlessly interesting to me, that the moment you finally feel like you're pretty good at something, it's time to give up and walk away. I think it all depends on what it is. For me, giving up stand-up around 1980 wasn't me saying, well, I've done it. It's that I didn't want to play arenas anymore, and I didn't feel I had anywhere to go with it. I didn't have a way to shape it into something new. That particular thing was just dead. Where on the other hand, in music, I play the banjo. I played it my whole life, and I'm still very interested in still writing tunes. But I'm not on the road like I was for a while with a band because that's that's its own kind of struggle. And uh, in that sense, yes, I kind of did that. And, and now I'd like to just write songs and maybe record them for a tiny audience. <laughs> And when you're playing the banjo, you automatically have a tiny audience. (laughs) (laughs) It's one of the things I hope is a kind of interesting point of view in the audiobook of me thinking about Steve or, or reflecting on Steve is that I only do one thing. And I've only ever done one thing since I was 20 years old. Now, I write song lyrics and I write plays and librettos and I try to tell funny stories, but they're really all versions of the same activity. They're all writing. So I I was fascinated by the truth that that Steve could do something that was really accomplished without flattery, like write a novel. And Steve wrote three novels, and each one was more interesting than the the previous one. There is a through line for me, and I'll just tell you what it is. Stand-up comedy. Mm -hmm. And I'm writing things for that, writing things for stand-up. But remember, I started with the Smothers Brothers Comedy Hour as a writer, so I'm writing sketches. So I have this little uh, experience with writing sketches and with writing stand-up. And then movies happened. Stand-up led me to movies. And then you start thinking, well, I've, I've written sketches and I've written, I could maybe write the screenplays because otherwise, as an actor, you're just waiting, waiting for someone to offer you something or fun. So I thought I'll, I'll experiment with that. And I got to write with Carl Reiner and different good writers. I was trying to get a screenplay written for Roxanne 
and I couldn't find anybody to write it. And just logic said, well, you <laughs> participate in a screenplay and you've done this. And so I'll do that. And, and then inadvertently, I got asked to write something for The New Yorker from Tina Brown. So I started writing prose and I started thinking, well, I can't just write one because that would be a fluke. I have to write another. Two still sounds like a fluke. I have to write 10. So you write 10 and then you start getting into prose and then you start thinking, hey, what about a longer thing? What Do I have anything to say? And you go, well, yeah, I do. This is a great example of a Kierkegaard observation that life can only be understood backward, but it has to be lived forward. Yeah. <laughs> Carl right. Reiner came up just now. I, I have to ask, one of my highlight moments of the audiobook was listening to the analysis of sort of the lessons from Carl Reiner. And the one that, frankly, I can't stop thinking about is the idea that Adam, I think, as, as you characterized it, that once upon a time, Steve was shy. And then yeah. he started playing <laughs> Carl Reiner to exude warmth off stage. <laughs> yeah. Tell, tell me yeah. about that experience. Well, Carl Reiner could go into a room and be very charming. And I realized it wasn't fake or phony. He, he could do it minimally. Just say hello to somebody. Tom Hanks is a genius at this, but he's sincere. I don't know. I just hear things are still coming up with what I'm saying interacting with people like, oh, that was Carl Reiner. That was Carl Reiner. If I say something in the course of this interview, I will say that was Carl Reiner. It's funny because I never got to meet Carl Reiner, but Steve's description of him was so vivid. And I listened to him countless times with Mel Brooks and then in on television. And I had a sense of him. And when Steve keyed me into that, I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. Be like Carl Reiner. And in my yeah. own weird way, I tried being like Carl Reiner and I found it's very successful. And I, because Carl Reiner, I think, and I mean, he's a man of of originality and genius, but in a certain sense, he belonged generically to a generation of Jewish spritzers of whom I know yeah, very well. That's right, Because yeah. every man in my family was like that, you know? And it was actually very funny because they wouldn't let me park my bike when we were doing the conversations inside Steve's building. And then I said, I'm gonna be Carl Reiner. And I, you know, talked to the doorman and said, what am I gonna do? You want me to leave my bike out there? It's gonna be stolen? And they said, okay, you can, you can leave it here. And it was my idea kind of based on the template of my own grandfather of what it was to be Carl Reiner. And it's, I've used it, I continue to use it in life. The first advice I ever got from Carl Reiner, we had the script for the jerk and he was going to do it. And he said, now here's what I do. Every time I get a screenplay, I'm going to direct. And I thought, this is going to be so wise, what he's going to say, I better write this down. And he says, I go through and I change all the nights to days. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. Let's circle back to this idea of playing Carl Reiner for a second or being Carl Reiner. As I've reflected on this, it seems to challenge the zeitgeist of being yourself. I think we're constantly urged when we're nervous or when we're uncomfortable, well, just be yourself, right? And that's, I think, a recipe for authenticity. And after hearing the two of you talk about Carl Reiner, I thought, no. No, we don't want to be ourselves. We want to figure out who do I know that's really effective in this situation? And then can I step into that role? Well, I think the advice of be yourself is the worst <laughs> advice yes. for humanity. <laughs> because nobody knows, especially when you're young, you don't know what yourself is. You don't even know what that means. You think it means be authentic or something. Well, authentic would be go lying on the sofa and watch television. <laughs> I think it's good to have a, a role model, a template that you can work around and then find your own 
authentic self within. It's exactly the way you find your voice in writing. Nobody ever finds their voice by shutting off their influences. You find it by imitating other people. And then through the process of osmosis, of putting in those people, internalizing their sound, suddenly one day you wake up and you say, oh, that doesn't sound like anybody else. That sounds like me. Many years ago, maybe 40 years ago, I'm talking to a woman who was a young actress and I was a young actor. And she said, I'm going into an audition and I don't know how to be. I could be aggressive or I could be shy or I could be this. And I said, well, why don't you try this to be yourself? And she said, I'll try that. <laughs> <laughs> when I was struggling to learn to drive, which I did in my 50s, Steve learned in his teens, the only way I could hold down my panic was to be my father. My father had been driving since he was 14. He's a super competent person. And I would literally sit there and intrude my father's self inside my own. And then I could understand how you held yourself while you were driving. So I think that, you know, that the, the logic of impersonation is a much better way into, maybe it's paradoxical to say into, into authenticity, but into exchange and interchange into how we relate to other people. Well, you've anticipated one of my favorite papers back in the late 90s. Lockwood and Kunda studied asking people to become their best selves and found that they aimed lower than if instead huh. they shot for a role model. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, we can call that the Carl Reiner phenomenon. Aim higher. Don't be you. Hey, Rethinking listeners, we're supported by our friends at Working Smarter, a new podcast from Dropbox exploring the exciting potential of AI in the workplace. Working Smarter talks with founders, researchers, and engineers about the things they're building and the problems they're solving with the help of the latest AI tools. Tools that can save them time, improve collaboration, and create more space for the work that matters most. On Working Smarter, hear practical discussions about what AI can do so that you can work smarter too. Listen to Working Smarter on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit workingsmarter.ai. Support for the show comes from Brooks Running. I'm so excited because I have been a runner, gosh, my entire adult life. And for as long as I can remember, I have run with Brooks running shoes. Now I'm running with a pair of Ghost 16s from Brooks. Incredibly lightweight shoes that have really soft cushioning. It feels just right when I'm hitting my running trail that's just out behind my house. You now can take your daily run in the better than ever Ghost 16. You can visit brooksrunning.com to learn more. I feel like it's time for a lightning round. Are you up for some rapid fire Q&A? Sure. sure I, I'd love to be canceled. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, what is your favorite role of Steve's? And Steve, what is your favorite role that you've played? Oh, that's easy for me. It's uh, Steve's take as Cyrano, really, in Roxanne. You know what? I would probably say the same thing, and I'll tell you why. Because I had written the screenplay, and now it's cast, and I thought, the one thing I haven't thought about is how to play it. And I thought, how am I going to play this? <laughs> and I just thought, well, upbeat. <laughs> 
All right, hard to argue with that, but our kids are going to be a little disappointed that it wasn't cheaper by the dozen. I was expecting Dirty Rotten <laughs> Scoundrels or Father of the Bride. In Father of the Bride, I'm essentially playing myself, a guy. A yeah. guy. I play a guy. <laughs> I think I was doing interviews for the movie and and the you know, you know that thing where you do 40 interviews in one day and the standard question, tell us about your character. I go, well, he's a guy. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Guy, what is your favorite podcast? I am on a show called Only Murders in the Building. And the reason that came about is I got fascinated on a true crime and not so much the, the events, which are horrible, but the solving. I found the solving really interesting. I do enjoy listening to an Australian podcast called Case File. I had been thinking of trying to write a book that is each paragraph is one sentence long and every sentence advances the story. And I thought that would be an interesting exercise and maybe an interesting thing. I don't know. And I was listening to Case File the other day and I realized that's what they do. <laughs> every yeah. Thing they say advances the story, and that's why it's unique and different. And the crimes are horrible. I don't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> yeah, they're horrible. <laughs> Tell me the worst advice you've ever gotten. The worst advice I've ever gotten was also the best advice I've ever gotten. And I'll tell you why. I was a young writer working around Hollywood. I think I had like Smothers Brothers show, and I got, you know, this Glenn Campbell show and and now I'm talking to an agent. I was also doing little stand-up here and there in local clubs, you know, hoot night, one night stands, whatever. And the agent passed away, but he said, stick to writing. <laughs> so in a sense, that's the worst advice. But on the other hand, it was also the best advice because I thought, oh, yeah, I'll show you. Wow. <laughs> wow. Steve Martin underdog is going to prove that agent wrong. Exactly. I have the same best advice, worst advice, though it came from a, a classy source. When I'd been writing for The New Yorker for about a year, John Updike, who was not just the CEO of American literature, but the Pope of American literature, is extraordinarily uh, distinguished as an ugly word. I can't think of a better one. And he came into my office. He said, I'm very much enjoying your writing, Mr. Gopnik. And then he said, you know, I have the impression from reading you that you're a yes writer. And if I can give you one piece of counsel, it's that you have to be either a yes writer or a no writer. And I suspect that you're a yes writer. So say yes to everything because you'll find you'll waste more emotional energy trying to choose between things you might do than just saying yes to everything. That, That's fabulous. That, and it's my work shows I took his advice. I say yes <laughs> to everything. Steve, what's the best part of being a comedian? This is not really an answer, but I'll tell you the one thing about being in comedy that is fantastic is that you get to hang out with funny people and also in the arts in general. And the arts is a great career choice. I've just found that in my life, hanging out with artists of any type is genuine fun. It's mind expanding because people will talk about anything. They're not saying, oh, we don't talk about that here, you know. Adam, from all the years you've been friends with Steve and, you know, the last year of conversations with him, wh what is something that he made you rethink? That's a good question. He made me rethink 
my own somewhat narrow relationship, we talked about it before, to prose, because Steve had taken on the task of learning something about writing a novel, and he'd written, as I say, three ones. Each one was better than the next. And then he'd put it aside to pursue other things. And I felt a little bit rut-bound when I was biking home from Steve's. And I was saying, you know, I shouldn't be so enslaved to this hamster wheel of prose production as I have been for the last 40 years, for the honorable reason that it it supports my family and for the less honorable but actual one that I love to do it. I actually get limitless pleasure out of producing sentences. But I, I genuinely thought, you know, I'm going to write more songs and more plays and more shows, and I sort of know how to do this, and I'll do other things. Whether I'll do it successfully or not, I don't know, but I genuinely felt emboldened in that way by our conversations. That was definitely one of the effects that the audiobook had on me, is it really uh-huh. inspired yeah. me to want to expand my own range and say, whatever I think is my comfort zone, I need to push the boundaries of that because that's part of what's made Steve such an interesting creative force in the world. Coming off what Steve was saying about the company of comedians and artistic people, I I love the company of comedians and I envy them so much. I have joked that Steve has two sidekicks. We're two short (laughs) Canadian sidekicks. And Marty is his comic one, I'm his highbrow one, right? And when I hear Steve and Marty interacting, I have nothing but deep envy for the speed of mind and the audacity of imagination. There was a joke in the audiobook that I think met your definition of, or maybe it's Carl Reiner's definition of refrigerator humor. Yeah. (laughs) Can you just explain refrigerator humor for our audience? I was working with Carl Reiner and and he said, oh, that's a refrigerator joke. And I said, what's a refrigerator joke? He said, you're watching the movie and you don't think it's funny or you don't laugh, and then you go home and you're standing in front of the refrigerator and suddenly it strikes you funny. (laughs) Yes. I love those moments. And you created one in the audiobook, which I think, Adam, you sort of, you had to nudge Steve to deliver. It was a joke about turning 77. Yes. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Steve, can you you give us that joke? Yes, the joke was, I actually use it in my show now. I say, I, I turned 77 this year and the audience applauds. And I say, oh, Wait, sorry, I'm a little dyslexic. I meant to say 77. (laughs) (laughs) I laughed when I heard it in the audiobook, and about three days later, you know, it popped into my mind, and I laughed hard. And it was just (laughs) such a great, great illustration of the very principle you were unpacking. And I know this is dangerous. People often say it's like dissecting a frog to deconstruct a joke. But Steve, could could you explain how you come up with a joke like that? And Adam, can you maybe add to that since you've seen him do this so many times? I I like nihilism. And I've used it before in my comedy in the 70s and 60s as anything that denied the premise. And I guess in a way, I don't know, it denies the premise and I'm saying, oh, I'm not this, I'm that, but it's exactly the same. And a lot of times these jokes just are funny on the way they sound. (laughs) You can't quite put your finger on why it is. Look, nothing can be more annoying, particularly to a naturally funny or a accomplished funny person than the analysis of humor. Nonetheless, I will say that I have always had a kind of pet theory, which maybe even comes up once or twice in the book, that what comedy often does, jokes often do, is that they propose a way of reorganizing the world or our knowledge that we recognize as plausible, but we dismiss as as unnecessary, as excessive. And also the thing of the joke is, because I, I have had dyslexia before where oh, uh-huh. I look at numbers and see them inverted and I 
in this case, I was able to fix it <laughs> by looking more carefully the first time. That was one thing. But I thought if you are dyslexic and you looked at it and you you would see them <laughs> inverted, <laughs> we have killed this joke, but I will Dead. I will tiresomely Dead. press the point that good jokes yeah. tend to be true things that are not helpful. Why do birds fly south in winter? Because it's too far to walk. That is absolutely true. Yeah. That yeah. is why, but it's not why birds fly south in winter. It's one condition that would keep birds from flying south in winter, but it's not a helpful explanation of avian behavior, though it happens to be true. It is too far to walk. Well, at the, at the risk of, of beating a dead horse here, when the two of you were talking about this kind of comedy that I think Steve perfected, it reminded me of what psychologists call the benign violation theory of humor, which is the idea that there's a threat to the way you think the world should be, but it turns out to be a completely harmless threat. And that's funny. I had not known that 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 name. Now I'm very depressed because I thought that was original to me. Benign not, violation. not depressed, validated, validated. <laughs> Benignly, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. Talk to me a little bit about the role of, of friendship in creativity and success. Friendship plays a big role in, in how your ideas unfolded. Your Martin Short friendship is legendary, both on screen and off. Talk to me about how this matters and whether we should all work with our friends. I can't even believe Adam cares about me at all. I mean, he is such a, so far more sophisticated, more aware, such a better writer, such a everything. But I've always loved working with other writers. When we're pitching comedy ideas, you find up things you could never think up alone. If you wanted to be a comedian, find other people who are interested in the same thing and sit with them and talk for months. Just sit and talk and see where your mind goes. I value my friendship with Steve to an extravagant degree, in part just for the sheer pleasure of talking, but also because one is reminded in the course of just, you know, the normal, lovely back and forth between two friends, Steve will suddenly come up with something that will remind you, oh my God, this guy is a comic genius. And you, it will be deeply uh, thrilling. There's no comic genius. I mean, you could say Charlie, Jones, but I thought, what is comic genius? That means you never miss. You say every joke and everything, people are on the floor. There's just no such thing. Well, I mean by it, it's like when you hear a Paul Simon melody. I know how to play guitar yeah. and I know how to write melodies to a certain limited degree. And you say, how did he think of that? You know, the, that relationship between E flat and D flat. I would never would have done that, right? And and it's, it's, it's astounding. I'm sorry, Steve, but I'm going to side with Adam on this one. You can't imagine what pressure you're putting on me. <laughs> I mean, I, somebody has to, right? You've got two Adams here. Well, I think it's actually uh, bad. Now, if somebody comes and sees me, they're some of think, "Oh, it's a genius." It's not a funny guy. That last line wasn't so no genius. good. Genius. I no. hate him. <laughs> <laughs> only a only a great comic would be that. Would at this stage be that that concern? I think when at least when I think about how to measure creative genius, I think about it not as your hit rate, but as how high is your peak. And oh. you're allowed to miss I'm a lot, not that right? High. I'd rather have it the other way. Seems to me when you're working with Marty, you you let Marty get a lot of the laughs. You're glad to be Carl Reiner to Marty's Mel Brooks, Jack Benny to Dennis Day. Yeah, yeah. All right, but I mean, Jack Benny's philosophy was: if they're getting the laughs, it's like I'm getting the laughs. Yeah, because he was the center of the show. I don't know. Yeah, it just makes our show better. We don't have jealousy about who's getting the laughs. It's so clearly for the audience as opposed to, you know, for either of you. 
one of the things I've noticed over the past few years of, of podcasting is that I end up asking all the questions and I don't let the guests do that at all. If there's anything you wanted to ask me, either about the audiobook or anything else you're curious about in the psychology world. Well, I'll ask a question that'll be as equally difficult for you to answer. What is the latest thing in psychology? Oh, What's the newest thing people are looking at? Oh, that's a really good question. I think one of the, the things that I've become fascinated by recently is there's a, a new body of research on what's called the victim personality. And it's the idea that you feel entitled to things going your way and obviously don't take it well when they don't. What I did not anticipate, though, was that this could be a source of status and even a virtue. I think we all know people who air their grievances like every day is Festivus. And it turns out that that is actually a strategy that they use. And particularly, it's a strategy that narcissists and psychopaths use because they, uh -oh. they know they can't promote other <laughs> virtues. Like if I'm extremely narcissistic, I'm not going to walk around talking about how generous I am, right? But claiming that other people have taken advantage of me and exploited me, well, that one I can defend. I, I do think that the, the, the victim culture is, is a, a kind of a new thing, isn't it? Where we're all uh, sort of uh, born inherently to be given things, you know, or to be praised. There's a beautiful book by Edith Eager, The Choice. She's a Holocaust survivor turned psychotherapist. And she said, look, taking victimhood in as part of your identity, that's a decision. That's a choice we make and it's a choice we can reject. Yeah, that's good. That's good. One of the things that, that the audiobook really made me think about differently was the relationship between success and happiness. We've debated for decades in my field about whether happiness energizes success or whether success breeds happiness or neither. And I think that one of the themes that, that came through, maybe in each of the Steves in some way, was that as you gain mastery, success leads to happiness, but that too much success could actually undermine it. And I was, I was curious to hear about your takes on that. I think success early on can be very difficult and yet that's what you want and you're happy you have it but success later in life is fantastic <laughs> and to have had success is fantastic even if you've lost it but to have had it is a great great thing i can't deny it happiness is is absorption in something outside yourself it could be in raising children which for me was the greatest source of happiness i was have been blessed to have mm -hmm. in life. Uh, likewise, yeah. Yeah, because that's totally exterior, right? You're just, you're waking up, you're responding, you're reacting, it's outside yourself. Uh, and the same thing is true about mastering music or anything else. And so for me, that's always the case that happiness is absorption. That is success to be absorbed. And it yeah. doesn't mean financial success or notoriety, but I know people who are so happy because they are absorbed in what they're doing. Talk about absorption. This time has flown by for me. I, I so appreciate the two of you taking the time to do it. We started Meta, so I'll close Meta and say that, that you know, Steve, your career has brought so much joy to so many people. And this audiobook is a joyful experience of, you know, not only reliving that joy, but adding to it. And it, it's clear you really are George Baker or maybe Tom Banks. And um, yeah. I, just, I just would hope that, you know, you rethink your decision to retire because we all mm -hmm. want more Steve Martin. I'm not retired. No, that, that was a misnomer. I, I think so, what someone asked me, they said, uh, are you going to retire? And I, and I cavalierly said, well, this is it. 
meaning I'm doing a television show and I'm doing a live show with Marty and writing, you know, recording some banjo music. That's what I meant. And then people took it as I was retiring. I wouldn't even, yeah, yeah. Such a relief. We look forward to uh, the sequel to the audiobook. Great. Thanks. Thank you both. Thanks a lot, Adam. We had a great time. Terrific. Thank you again, Adam. See you, Adam and Adam. Bye. Right. I never thought that I would get a chance to interview Steve Martin. And he was so earnest, so sincere, and even more so when his good friend Adam joined the conversation. And that's made me start to think differently about authenticity. When so many of us think about authenticity, we think about just sort of reaching inward and trying to figure out who am I and how do I bring that outward. But I think Steve's experience with Carl Reiner flips that. He says, well, I've got a friend who exemplifies something I want to be. And so let me play that role. And what's so interesting is that friends aren't only models of who we want to become. They're also conduits to moving in that direction. And so I think a big part of authenticity is not just figuring out who are the role models that I aspire to be more like, but also asking who are the friends that can help me move in that direction. Rethinking is hosted by me, Adam Grant, and produced by Ted with Cosmic Standard. Our team includes Colin Helms, Eliza Smith, Jacob Winnick, Asia Simpson, Samaya Adams, Michelle Quint, Ben Ben Chang, Hannah Kingsley Ma, Julia Dickerson, and Whitney Pennington Rogers. This episode was produced and mixed by Cosmic Standard. Our fact checker is Paul Durbin. Original music by Hansdale Sue and Allison Layton Brown. Hang on. Mm-hmm. Uh, one, uh, yeah, sorry. Hi, I'm doing a, a podcast. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Never mind. I'll be done. I'll be done shortly. I'll be done shortly. Okay. Bye. All right, bye.